Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 44 with your host, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Joe Kreisberg from the Massachusetts Association of Community Development Corporations. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Skype. Via Skype, right? And <laughs> so no long preamble required uh, narrative about... <laughs> The times we're living in and such. Let's let's get to it. MACDC. Are you getting a lot of calls confusingly for uh, Centers for Disease Control right now? We're getting a few. I, at least the first week, I think it was one or two a day. But um, luckily, I don't get those calls. Uh, someone in our, else in our office has to field those. But um, <laughs> we've often joked that we're the other CDC, and we definitely feel that way right now. <laughs> That's funny. Tell us a little about what your CDC does and uh, what the MACDC is. Yeah, sure. So community development corporations are nonprofit community-based groups that work in neighborhoods and communities across the state and across the country to expand opportunity for low and moderate income people. That often is focused on housing and the built environment, commercial real estate and so forth, but it can also include job training, small business development, youth services, and a variety of programs. And really focused on creating great places for people to raise a family, uh, get an education, have a job, and, and, and have a fulfilling life, and to be able to participate in the civic life of the community. So it all starts with kind of community and community engagement. CDCs have been around for about 50 years. Our association's been around for nearly 40 years. And over that time, our members have built probably about 18,000, 19,000 apartments, a couple thousand home ownership units, um, a number of commercial properties. You know, I think they've made a real measurable difference in the lives of uh, our communities across the state. How many different community development corporations do you guys manage or oversee in Massachusetts? Uh, we have 63 state certified CDCs, and there is a there is a specific process you go through where you apply to the state for certification based on a set of criteria. And, you know, we, we represent them, so I, I don't manage them. Uh, they yeah. more manage me. We're like a typical trade association in that respect. We're here to be their voice in state government, to provide training and technical assistance, and to a significant degree, provide a platform for them to interact with their colleagues and peers, learn from each other. And, you know, we've been doing a lot of that in the last few weeks because everybody's trying to figure out how we respond to this moment. So I just got off a call with 50 of our members and we're having similar conversations, you know, almost every other day, I would say. Now, are you building across the state or are you focused mainly in Suffolk County? Yeah, we're, we have members from uh, outer Cape Cod. Uh, East Ham is probably the furthest east. And we have members in Pittsfield and Great Barrington and most of the gateway cities, although not all. Uh, we certainly have a strong presence here in the Boston area. There's 20 of our 63 members are in the city itself, a couple in Cambridge, Somerville, Quincy. Very strong tradition here in Boston. For our listeners' benefit, what are a few of the larger uh, CDCs that are within your group? Yeah, so Urban Edge in Jamaica Plain, Roxbury, and Madison mm -hmm. Park, which is near Dudley Square, probably the two biggest from a real estate standpoint. They each have, I think, about 1,300 apartments. Some of the other large ones, Dorchester Bay. Economic Development Corporation, Jamaica Plain Neighborhood Development Corporation, which owns the brewery complex in JP that's pretty well known. Homeowners Rehab and Justice Start are in Cambridge, both of them, and they're they're fairly 
substantial operation. If you get outside the city, Maine South CDC and Worcester is pretty well known. They have a great partnership with Clark University, really completely revitalized the neighborhood around the university. Franklin County CDC out in Western Mass is one of our stronger economic development groups. They run a, an incubator, a small business incubator. They have a food processing center that they operate to help food businesses. So there's quite a mix. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention NOAA. So that's East Boston, uh, one of the two CDCs in East Boston. And uh, I've been on the board there for a number of years. Uh, it's a really great group. And it's actually how I got introduced to Joe. Well, one of the things that's interesting about NOAA, not only do they have a, a great name, uh, although unfortunately it may be foretelling the future, is you know they've done amazing work in East Boston in terms of affordable housing. But they're one of those groups that is, really tailors their strategy to the specific neighborhood they're in. So they're right now buying um, triple-deckers and other small properties as a way to keep them affordable. And, you know, that's that's a challenging business to be in, to be out there competing with the for-profit private market. But that's what we need to do to prevent displacement in East Boston. And they're also doing a lot of work around climate change, given that they're right on the water. So I love NOAA because they're a good example of how Community development is really tailored to the place where it's happening. So it can look quite different in East Boston than in Worcester or Western Mass. Joe, we had uh, we actually had Carrie Tennant from the Community Builders on about nine episodes ago, and she was explaining to us quite a bit about how the funding works. I know we had a lot of feedback from our listeners about that. Could, could you give us kind of a high level and kind of maybe recap or, or give us a lowdown in terms of how community development companies can receive funding for these projects? The core of community development, the center of gravity is still real estate to a large degree and affordable housing in particular. And that's in part because we have a very robust system for affordable housing development. And um, the original idea I think was that, you know, if there's gonna be affordable housing in our neighborhoods and people are gonna make money building affordable housing, then it should be done by a community group that can recycle those profits back into that same neighborhood. And that was one of the founding principles of community development. And, you know, the way it works, really, the primary program for affordable housing is the low-income housing tax credit. In some ways, that's the sun around which everything else revolves. So virtually every single significant new affordable housing deal built around the tax credit program. That's the core funding mechanism. And we can talk a little bit of how that works if you want. Um, and then the second big plug is usually the Section 8 program or the rental, uh, rental assistance program that provides the per subsidy, the operating subsidy, so that very low-income families can afford the rent. Then you go to the state and local level, you can get additional grants or often structured as soft debt to, to round out the financing picture. And unfortunately, as projects have become more expensive, we have had to pull together more and more funding sources. So you can't just get two funding sources and move. You sometimes need eight, nine, 10. And it's both a, a challenge because construction costs are getting higher, but we also have a challenging situation on the operating side because our rents are tied to median income. And as we all know, in our country, median income over the last 30 years has been relatively flat. But our costs, our costs are tied to our costs, you know, so whether it's energy or insurance or taxes or security or cleaning or maintenance, all those costs are going up more or less with inflation, if not faster. 
So our costs are rising faster than our revenues. That means you can support less debt. That means you need more subsidy. And more subsidy you need on each project, the less subsidy there is to go around. So it's become very tight uh, in the last 10 to 15 years. When you do an affordable housing transaction, you do get a developer fee, usually around 10% of your total development costs. And that is you know, a core revenue stream for the organization that can fund the next development, but also the other programming. Seems like low-income tax credits. We talked about that. There's two different flavors. And I guess my question is just why, why is that the main source? Is that because there's larger companies that are generating massive profits and they've, they're, they're using the tax credits to offset those profits? Is that how this came to be? Well, the question of why is a good one, and there's probably a lot of answers to it. I mean, the one answer is that in 1986, Congress enacted a significant tax reform package that took away a lot of the subsidies for real estate development that existed prior to 1986. And don't ask me to explain those tax breaks because <laughs> I don't know what they were. I just know they and advocates for affordable housing saw that as an opportunity to say, well, if you're going to take away all these other tax breaks that are motivating private developers to build apartment buildings, and we built a lot of apartment buildings in the 60s and 70s and 80s, in part because of those tax subsidies, it needs to be replaced with something. And so what was born was the tax credit program that we know today, and it was trying to solve a couple of problems from prior generations of affordable housing. The idea was to inject private capital and leverage private capital so you're less reliant on just public subsidy. The idea was that you wanted a flexible program. You wanted it to be self-renewing. And once you build something in the tax code, it's there until it's taken out as opposed to a government appropriation that you need every year. Oh. And frankly, a lot of people wanted to get away from HUD as the administrating agency because they had challenges with HUD and HUD bureaucracy. And this program is really overseen by the private sector through the tax credit mechanism. So over time, Congress, uh, in its wisdom, has devoted most of its affordable housing resources to growing the tax credit program. At this point, it's really the only significant capital subsidy available from the federal government. There's a little bit of CDBG money. There's a little bit of home money, but it's dwarfed in comparison. And a whole industry has been built up around the tax credit program of syndicators, investors, and lawyers, and accountants that they're to advocate for the program, which is one of the reasons why it has been the longest and most durable affordable housing program really in history. Um, it's 30 years. You know, um, if you go back before 1986, it seemed like every five or 10 years we were changing the rules and changing the program design. So to be clear, the tax credit program absolutely positively could not work if we did not have Section 8 rental assistance program as well. Virtually every project in the country depends on additional funding from Section 8. And at least in Massachusetts, every project also needs additional funding from state and local government. So while the tax credit program sort of gets a lot of attention and kind of gets the credit and it is sort of the, the first building block, you know, that program can't succeed without the other program. So it really is about putting it all together into a uh, into a package. So you mentioned, Joe, that, you know, things are getting pretty tight over the last 10 to 15 years. In your opinion, what do you think the solution to the problem or 
going forward, what do you think some changes to the program may need to be to solve that issue? Well, there's a couple of things I would say. I mean, first of all, the, the demand for affordable housing, especially in a state like Massachusetts, is is overwhelming. And at some level, we just need more money. And prior to the pandemic, we were uh, part of a very strong and active campaign that was seeking to increase the deeds excise tax in a way to generate another $150 million a year for affordable housing in Massachusetts. And that would certainly go a long way. But I think beyond the obvious of needing more money, you know, we would also argue that we need a slightly more flexible toolbox uh, on afford- for affordable housing. So right now, 90% of our affordable housing money that's not in the tax credit program, state and local dollars, go to tax credit projects to fill the gap. And that makes it harder to do home ownership because you can't do home ownership with the tax credit program. It makes it hard to do acquisition rehab like Noah's doing in East Boston because for small acquisition rehab projects, the tax credit program doesn't work. It makes it hard to do community scale housing in rural and suburban communities where an eight or 10 unit project might be what fits in a particular location, but the tax credit program demands that you do 30 or 40 or 50 units to get the scale to cover the overhead. So part of what we've been advocating for is funding streams that are not tied to the tax credit program to allow us to build a range of housing types, a different tenure, different size, different income targeting to meet the needs of different communities. You know, there's a lot of talk about trying to reduce costs and certainly we need to do that. On the operating side, I think, the affordable housing industry has done a pretty good job in the last 10 years to reduce our energy costs. There's lots of good reasons to reduce energy use. There's been a substantial investment in um, retrofitting and improving our properties to reduce energy costs. So that's a good thing. It'd be nice if we could reduce some of the admin costs associated with these programs, the income certification and the inspections. You know, there's probably more of that admin than we need, um, or they're diminishing returns. And on the construction side, you know, I mean, this is a problem for the construction industry generally, right? How do we get these costs down? And people look at modular, they look at smaller unit size. All those things are, you know, get you a little bit of the way there, but not very far. Um, one of the things that we ought to be thinking about, depending on how this whole pandemic thing plays out, is, you know, we're likely to see some decline in land prices. And maybe that's a good time to buy some properties when, when the market's down. But when you're competing in a hot market against the private sector, you know, costs are going to be high. What about changes to specific zoning uh, or building zoning code to, you know, cater to, you know, specific affordable developments? And we have that in some respects, right, with 40B laws, which would allow you to override local zoning if you promise a certain level Mm -hmm. to bring up a certain level of affordability. But don't you have to have don't 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 certain percentages have to be met within that municipality for those projects? Yeah. So the the just on the zoning question in Chapter Forty B. So for your listeners who don't know, in, in 1969, as far back as 1969, Massachusetts passed a law that says any municipality uh, that does not have at least 10 percent of its housing stock as government restricted affordable housing, then those cities and towns, in those cities and towns, developers can propose multifamily housing 
and build it with state permission and override local zoning, as long as that housing has 25% of the units being affordable to low and moderate income people. So it's a very market-driven approach. Nothing gets built unless the developer goes to a town and decides it's in my you know, financial interest to buy a piece of property and, and build on it. Um, but if the town says, no, we're not gonna let you build, we only want single family homes, we only want uh, luxury housing, the developer has the option to go to the state and override that local zoning. And, and tens of thousands of apartments have been built across Massachusetts through this program. Frankly, without this program, there'd be virtually no rental housing at all in our suburban communities. And what it also does is it allows the developer to get more density, uh, which makes the whole thing work financially. And even the market rate units in these projects tend to be a little bit smaller and a little bit less expensive than the surrounding community. You know, my cousin lives in a, in a 40B project in a market rate unit, and it's a perfectly nice home. He has a small yard. But when I went to first visit him uh, many years ago, I was surprised that he had such a small, modest house in a very wealthy neighborhood or community. And it's because it's part of a 40B development, and it allows him and families like his to, to live in that community. So we're a big fan of that kind of inclusionary zoning where you get trade-off more density for more affordability. We think that's a big part of the solution to let the private market create some of this housing. And, you know, fortunately, we have 40B here in Massachusetts. Sure. What are the advantages of uh, being a CDC? And also, how, how does one become a new CDC? Okay, good question. So. The primary advantage of, well, there's really two main advantages to being a community development corporation in Massachusetts. One is that it's a well-respected and identifiable brand, and there's generally positive views and policymakers at the state and local level and private funders say, oh, you're a CDC, you know, CDCs are good, strong organizations, we want to support you. So some of it's just kind of a branding identity. Mm -hmm. um, the main financial benefit of being a CDC is that only CDCs can access the Community Investment Tax Credit Program. And this is a new program. It was created in 2012, signed into law by Governor Patrick. And what it allows is for donors uh, who make donations to CDCs can get a 50% refundable tax credit off their state taxes. So if I give $1,000 to NOAA, I then I fill out my taxes, I get $500 tax credit back. So it's obviously an incentive to give, and it's an incentive to give more. And that program um, is leveraging about $10 million in private philanthropy right now for CDCs across the state. CDCs apply for an allocation of credits each year. They can get up to $200,000 in credits that they can turn around and raise $400,000. So it's a very powerful tool for getting individuals and companies to give money to CDCs. And it's definitely a motivation and a benefit to being a CDC. There are a few other programs where CDCs get extra points or they're favored or they're sort of acknowledged, but this is the only real meaningful financial program that is exclusive to CDC. But it's a big one. And it, it's definitely motivated some groups to um, seek the CDC status. Now, how to become a new CDC? This is a challenge. Virtually every single one of our member organizations was created more than 25 years ago. Uh, during the 70s and 80s, state government was very proactively trying to support new CDCs 
was a big part of Governor Dukakis's economic development strategy. And you'll see a bunch of CDCs formed between about 1975 and 1988. And there was seed funding to help start new groups. Today, it's much more difficult. It's much more difficult because to some degree, there's already a bunch of CDCs and they consume a lot of the money and resources and human capital talent. And, you know, there's just not enough room left. And, you know, you can only have so many movie theaters. You can only have so many drugstores. Maybe you can have an unlimited number of drugstores these days. But, you know, there's, there's only so much oxygen in the system for, for community development groups. So for a new organization forming in a, new, in a community without one, when they start applying for housing dollars or small business development funding or any funding source, they're competing with groups that have a lot of experience, a lot of capacity, a lot of relationships. And it's an unfortunate thing because I think any sector needs to have new blood coming along to, um, to innovate, to challenge, to push. But we see this in the nonprofit sector more generally, that it's a little less dynamic than the for-profit um, arena, and it's a little harder for startups. What we've seen more often is an existing nonprofit expand its mission to become a CDC, if you know what I mean. So there was a group, Harbor Light Community Partners, up on the North, North Shore in, in, in Beverly, and they were um, basically a faith-based, church-based group working on, to provide housing for homeless people. They slowly became uh, more and more, they're doing more and more affordable housing. And about 10 years ago, maybe more recently, even after CITC passed, to say, you know, wait a minute. You know, we started out as a faith-based group working with their homeless, but we've kind of evolved into a regional CDC. You know, we have community people on the board. We're helping people get housing. We're helping lift up economically. I think we qualify. So they applied for certification status, and they got it. And now they're a CDC, and they're very active in our association. But they're not a new group. They've been around for probably 30 years. Joe, a quick question to kind of piggyback on what Dan was asking earlier, and, and maybe this is corollary, is do you see an argument for CDCs merging together? Would they achieve additional synergies or lower overhead costs if they combined? And so maybe instead of creating new CDCs, do you make the current ones mm-hmm. bigger? Is that yeah. is that a bad assumption? No, it's not a bad assumption. And I think that sometimes that is a good a good answer or a good a good approach, and we had uh, just last year the biggest CDC merger in Massachusetts history, uh, with two groups on the South Shore, now called NaveWorks Housing Solutions. I won't tell you what their old names were because it'll just confuse your listeners. But there were two organizations, both serving virtually the same geography on the South Shore. One was a little more focused on rental housing, and one was a little more focused on home ownership. They had. Uh, some other distinguishing characteristics, but fundamentally the same core mission. And over the course of about two or three years, they started doing some projects together. They started, they co-located their offices in a couple of communities, got to know each other, you know what I'm saying, and eventually decided to go for the full merger. I think that was made possible in part because one of the executive directors was ready to step aside, which is sometimes an obstacle. And so last July 1st, they merged. And I, I think so far from what I'm, what I'm seeing, it's been a successful merger. It doesn't happen as often as you might think for a couple of reasons. Successful organizations are successful, so why would they want to change? 
and unsuccessful organizations. Well, who wants to merge with an unsuccessful organization with a lot of problems and debt and you know other issues? You know, it's not a very appealing prospect. The other thing is that community development is fundamentally a local activity about local people having a say in about their future of their community. So in the North South Shore, you already had two regional groups serving the same region, so you didn't lose that local connection. But if you were to have, you know, the merger of a CDC in Dorchester with the merger of a CDC in Jamaica Plain, then you start to be like, well, wait a minute, like, where are we from? Who are we accountable to? We've seen some of that. So the CDC in Gardner, you know, was, was struggling and was ultimately, wasn't really a merger, but it was an acquisition by the Fitchburg CDC. But, you know, East Boston is a good example where we have two outstanding organizations. They've operated side by side for 30 years. As far as I know, there's never been any conversation about a merger, but they're both successful. And so um, I think that there's not much incentive to do that. And, you know, mergers, sometimes the savings are there, but they're not. Sometimes you can also just create more bureaucracy. So I, sure. I, I don't have a strong ideological view on mergers. I, I think that there are definitely times that it makes sense. but it's probably gonna be a limited part of the solution going forward. No, that's a that's a really that's a I really appreciate that and and that helps really explain it and obviously it makes sense you know keeping the local community connection. You mentioned earlier CITCs. Can you yep. explain further what those are? Yes, yeah, so how, how they've the been effective. Yes, yeah, so that's a community investment tax credit where donors get a fifty percent donation if they give to a CDC. Now. That's sort of the headline of that program. If you give to one of our CDCs, you can get half your money back from the state. So that's a good reason to donate to the CDC, or for that matter, MACDC, because we're in the program as well. But the program is more than that, because one of the things we, we set up with the program is that to get the credit in the first place, the CDCs have to apply to the state, and they have to submit a community investment plan. And that's a three-year plan that lays out the community they're serving, the challenges and opportunities in that community, their strategy for addressing them, how they're going to collaborate with other community partners, how they're going to engage the community in, in doing the work, how they're going to pay for it, how they're going to evaluate it. So a really comprehensive business plan for how they're going to get their job done. And the process of creating that plan has really pushed CDCs to be more explicit and more clear about what they're trying to do and how they're going to evaluate success. And then they submit that to the state, assuming they get credit. Then they go out to private donors and with the donations. And that also means donations often involve relationships. Almost always it's a relationship. So we feel like the program's been a great success because not only is it generating more money, and we know our members need more money and can put that money to good use, but it's forcing them to be a little bit more disciplined about their strategy, a little bit more explicit about their evaluation and their metrics and how they're measuring success. And it's pushing them to go reach out to people in the community, private businesses, foundations, individuals, and cultivate new relationships. So we're excited about it. It's been around since 2014. The legislature um, just extended it. It was originally for six years. Now they've extended it out for another six. So the program will be around for a while, hopefully forever. Quick question about the current environment. Uh, obviously, you know, a lot of construction is shut down on, in this, on the state level. Is this impacting a lot of your current projects or, or a number of the CDCs across the state's projects? 
Absolutely. I mean, we have a number of projects in construction, um, or we did on March 11th. <laughs> and, you know, in City of Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, I think all have a complete ban. Although I think there is a waiver process. And I know one of our CDCs was able to get a waiver for some mold remediation because the workers are already wearing hazmat suits. So the city decided it was safe for them to go and do that work. Kind of ironic. It's safe to do mold remediation, but not. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's weird times, right? Yeah. Uh, but at, what we're hearing from our members is even in communities that have not instituted a ban, projects are being slowed. There's workforce issues with people not coming to work, presumably for good reason. Supply chain disruptions, we're starting to hear more about that. Following the new safety protocols, that takes time, that takes education, you know, that slows it down. You got to keep the guys apart, all that kind of thing. And then, you know, a lot of municipalities, you know, they don't have their inspectors. They're not able to do inspections. So in terms of moving things along, it, even where there's not a complete shutdown, there's a significant slowdown. And, and that's probably going to get more so in the next few weeks, not less so. So I think we're looking at a multi-month, you know, just blockage in the system. And that's going to cause pain for, for a long time because once the stuff gets backed up, it's hard to catch up. There's going to, you know, once they, um, once they tell us the coast is clear, you know, there's going to be a rush and there's going to be a labor shortage. There's going to be a supply shortage. You know, we're going to see a lot of challenges for projects across the board, even season otherwise. And, you know, we've been here before a little bit from 2009, 2010. I mean, obviously it was a different reason, but we had the same situation where projects got stalled. So the state and the federal government are going to have to step up and, and frankly, add some money to these projects because, you know, the construction interest, you're still paying that. These delays are going to cost money. So my, I guess my kind of further to that point, are you pre-filling units before they're done with, with tenants? When we're renting out for affordable housing, you have to go through a pretty comprehensive and expensive and timely uh, process where there's a lottery, you have fair housing rules. So, I don't know. That's a good question. I honestly don't know if folks are going to proceed with those processes so that they're ready to, to occupy the units faster once the project is done. I think the challenge is you can't get too far ahead of yourself because you have to income certify people. And if you income certify people three or four months before they move in, then you're going to just have to do it all over again. And even marketing units right now is challenging, obviously. So I don't, I don't know for sure how that's all going to work out. So what are your thoughts on how we can balance the needs uh, of, of landlords and tenants right now? Recently saw on Twitter that the CEO of the Cheesecake Factory wrote a letter to every single landlord saying, don't expect rent this month. And it seemed to be applauded widely. And I, I didn't have the same reaction. You know, <laughs> First of all, can we, can we, can we are we the just, Cheesecake Factory. Can we just find out why Cheesecake Factory, I feel like they've been doing really well. Everybody loves it. It's obviously not... You know, how how are they? How are they? Oh, wait, how are they not making one month's payment? Well, who knows? But he's who knows? It and <laughs> you know, we're small business owners who have a few yeah. maybe rental properties. Well, we were just having this conversation in my house because my young adult son is came home because he's working remotely and um, he's living with us, and yet of course he still has to pay rent in his apartment in, in New York. And um, he's like, well, you know, we're sort of thinking, he was sort of wondering, you know, well, maybe I should um, 
talk to my landlord, why am I paying rent for an empty apartment? I said, well, he has bills too. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. So yeah, it's a challenge. Listen, it's a chain of pain, you know, yeah. you know, for the tenant, for the landlord and for the lender and, um, and probably lots of other folks involved in, in housing right now. And to some degree, I think, the pain has to be shared across the board. Everybody's got to feel a little bit of it. Nobody's going to come out of this completely whole. So I think that the federal uh, legislation is a pretty good first step with the unemployment insurance and the mm -hmm. cash payments. It doesn't really help people for April 1st rent, but for on the residential side, by May 1st, hopefully most people who lost their job or were furloughed are going to be having an income that allows them to pay rent. And they should pay rent. Even if there's an eviction moratorium, you should still pay rent if you can. Otherwise, you're just postponing the problem. Obviously, we're advocating for a significant amount of funding for rental assistance to help people who are in arrearages. We have a infrastructure for that. The governor just committed $5 million. I know that cities and towns are going to be putting money on the table to help tenants uh, pay their rent obligations. And I do think on the residential side, I'll get to commercial in a second, you know, Banks are being encouraged to be flexible and there'll probably be some forbearance by the banks and they'll have to eat some of it too. So in a perfect world, that would get spread out more or less evenly between those three parties, the tenant, the landlord, and the bank. In the real world, there's going to be cases where the tenant takes it on the chin and others where the landlord, and, and honestly, sometimes it's going to be the bank. Now on the commercial side, frankly, it's much harder. There are no subsidies for commercial tenants. And yes, I'm less sympathetic to Cheesecake Factory than I am to the barbershop down the street where I get my hair cut. You know, how does he make rent? And what's the landlord going to do? Evict a 30 or 40 year community business and try to refill that, that storefront with what? Bricks and mortar retail is in huge trouble after this. We were in trouble before. So I think on the commercial side, it's really tough. I think the Cheesecake Factory's letter, um, with, I guess now they're playing hardball and I suppose all fair and love war and business. But my hope is that landlords and tenants would talk and try to work out some, some short-term arrangement for April and just kind of get through April. And then both the tenant and the landlord can apply for these emergency loans from the SBA. And maybe that can tie them over until we can get things back on track but yeah. it's, it's, I saw New yeah. York City uh, was talking about allowing landlords to use security deposit money towards uh, a month's rent and I thought yeah, that was an innovative approach I thought that was a really good idea I mean yeah. you know again we're we're improvising here nothing's perfect but that struck me as a good solution uh, I thought so too and there's obviously a number of these federal programs that, you know, we've gone through three federal stimuli, if you will, which, again, the funds haven't come out to people. And, and that's the biggest challenge is between when it passed at the end of March to when the funds will actually come out, which is most likely going to be middle to the end of this month. Yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely at least one month of pain. I personally think we're going to have another there's got to be another round of federal intervention. And obviously, the concern is just making sure that the funds are going to the right folks. Uh, you know, you don't want it to be going to the folks that don't need it or could absorb something like that. Yeah. Well, I'll take the other side. I, I kind of think that the bigger sin would be not getting the money to where it's needed. And that if in the process of doing that, 
some industries, some people who didn't need money get some subsidy, then let it go. Like we we can't admire this in bureaucracy and red tape. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna if you're not gonna fund a company or help a company that has a hundred thousand people, that if they don't get any money, they're gonna all be laid off and have no jobs. I mean, you gotta think of some. You gotta think of those people too. Hey, can we jump into um, the gate? You mentioned gateway cities in Massachusetts. And it's always, there's been a few gateway cities that I've always had my eye on for investment. And um, some of them have done better. Some of them have been frustratingly flat, even through the past years, which have been excellent otherwise. Any thoughts on, you know, Springfield or Worcester or uh, our, our other Gayfield, gateway cities? Well, you know, the gateway cities are interesting because some of them aren't so, are quite, well, up until a few weeks ago, were really starting to thrive, you know, especially those near Boston, like, you know, a Salem, certainly, but even a Lynn, a Revere, Chelsea, yeah. in ways we would not have anticipated. But very different story, I think, with Springfield, Holyoke, Fall River, New Bedford, Fitchburg, those places, you know, the real estate market is still extra- extremely weak. And because the state policy system really is focused on dealing with the affordability crisis in Eastern Mass, they're not really providing much funding or support to places like Springfield and, and Holyoke in dealing with things like vacant property. They don't need new construction, new housing. They need to fix up the housing stock they have to make it safe and attractive and, and to bring more people into the, into the community. So. That's one of the things we are advocating for, and I think it's still going to move forward at some level. Arguably, this crisis could, could accelerate the interest in that program. We, we've been partnering with Mass Housing on creating what we're calling a neighborhood stabilization hub, and they're going to be deploying, they're going to have, they have some money, they're going to be able to fund individual gateway cities to do, to identify vacant properties and figure out what's the best strategy for getting them back online, whether it's receivership or tax title, or even potentially a stoplight eminent domain approach. So that's what our focus has been in the, in the gateway cities. You know, some of them are positioned potentially to sort of be bedroom communities to the greater Boston economic engine, but some really aren't and, uh, and need to find a different path. Joe, how do we stop? We, we talked earlier about local people having say in their communities, and I think we could all agree that that's a great thing. To an extent, and, and where where I see it is, is problematic, is is what I we talk a lot about maybe the NIMBY movement. Yep. And, you know, folks who come to every development meeting and cry foul. The New York Times had a piece recently, and the author suggested that some of those same individuals should be viewed through the lens of of, of being hoarders and mm-hmm. being greedy. You have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, this is a real complex and, 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 and big challenge in the field. You know, I'm actually reading a book right now about Ed Logue. There's a, a biography about his time as the head of BRA in the 1960s. And, you know, obviously there was a strong reaction, negative reaction to urban renewal and the way that was done in the 50s and 60s. And the CDC movement in many case, many ways is really was born out of the re reaction, a negative reaction to urban renewal. And so we were born, our movement, as NIMBYs, fighting back against what the BRA was proposing. I mean, that's really an oversimplification, but it basically what happened in the 60s. 
So sometimes, you know, I would say nimbyism is the right response, but not always. And so when we talk about the importance of community power and community voice, we always balance that with the need for racial equity and economic opportunity. And those are our three core values and everything sort of centers on those three core values. And sometimes the community voice can run in opposition to what is the right thing from a racial equity standpoint. So it depends a little on whose voice is being heard at these community meetings. And you know, Boston University professors did some research recently and you know, not such a surprise that the folks showing up at a lot of those community meetings are white middle-class homeowners. Right. And, you know, uh, tenants and immigrants and people of color and low-income people and young people are often underrepresented in those community meetings. So it can't just be the loudest voice at the community meeting. We need to think about civic engagement as not just showing up in order to fight against something, but really getting involved in the community and having a positive vision about what you want, not just what you don't want. And uh, that's why we support both Chapter 40B, which overrides local zoning, and we support community-based development. It really depends on the, on the place and the time. But you know, I think it's fair critique that people have that we sort of overreacted to the sins of urban renewal and created a, a, another sin by having so much power for abutters and um, a narrow set of community voices. Um, we're all trying to navigate that. I think the governor's housing choice program by reducing the margin from supermajority to majority would just help because it prevents a small group of people from stopping things and uh, you know allows the majority to uh, to move forward. Um, but this is going to be an ongoing challenge. Part of what we see our role is making sure we bring more voices to the table. And you know the hardest thing is, to bring to the table the voices of the people who don't yet live in the community. Whether they're coming from another country or from another town or where they haven't been born yet, they're stakeholders in our future as well. And you know, our system doesn't really give them much of a voice. Absolutely. I think that's really that's really well said and uh, appreciate that perspective. Dan Wright, do you guys have any last questions? I think we're getting to be about time. No, I, I think this has been great. I think it's been really helpful to understand some of the terminology and, and what a lot of these organizations do. And we really appreciate you taking the time, especially in, in this situation that we're all in right now. Well, it's nice to talk about something besides the coronavirus. Yeah. So I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> Indeed, we feel the same and we're grateful to have you out there and the MACDC uh, on the front lines doing the work that you guys do which is so important. So thank you again, Joe. Well, thanks for having me and uh, good luck getting through this. As well, if folks want to find out more about MACDC, donate by community investment tax credits, <laughs> how can they do that? Um, our website is www.macdc.org. And we have um, a ton of information about our members. We have links to all of their websites, to their community investment plans. There's certainly a link to donate to our organization and, uh, and information about what we are doing in response to this really challenging economic time. Great. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Joe. All right. Stay, stay safe, everyone. Thank you for listening. Be well. Yep. Take you care. Too. Bye-bye.